17. And while you're turning there, I certainly want to extend our uh, <clears throat> welcome to the Foster family. And uh, they dropped in tonight, and Mr. Foster said, we stopped because y'all had the lights on. And so we're thankful that they're with us here tonight. Amen. And uh, also good to have the Sullys with us. Uh, they were, I guess you'd say they were in prison for about 10 days or so. They got in from uh, Senegal on Thanksgiving Day. And uh, I think they'll be here with us for maybe a couple more weeks. And then they're moving on to uh, celebrate the holidays with um, Jessica and her husband. And then start deputation in January. So we certainly need to pray for them that the Lord would touch and minister in their lives. And uh, <clears throat> I want to say we've got a large uh, crowd uh, that's online with us tonight. And uh, we appreciate everybody that's watching our live stream uh, on Facebook. And um, there's a church up in Kentucky, Brother Wayne Naylor's church. They are uh, currently closed down because of COVID. And so some of their folks are with us here tonight and then our others that are here uh, that normally are, are here with us. And I'm thankful that you have stopped in with us tonight. And um, I know that you heard Brother Jonathan mention, and they did a very good job here today, Brother Jonathan, leading the service this morning and then, to, and then tonight. And then the praise team uh, working in Sister Regina Miller's absence. They have done a very good job this morning and did very good again here tonight leading us in worship. Uh, but Brother Jonathan did mention to you that we have a prayer revival that starts tomorrow night at 6.30. And it will start uh, 6.30 tomorrow night, 6.30 Tuesday night. Wednesday night will be at 7 o'clock. And uh, we certainly are in great need of people praying for our nation. Uh, our nation right now is in great need of prayer. And so we are going to practice some of that and uh, pray for some other things as well. Exodus chapter 17, I'd like to begin in verse 8. The Bible says, Then Amalek, then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men. And go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. And so Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. It came to pass that when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand... Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and they put it under him, and he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar 
and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi, for he said, because the Lord had sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to, to generation. And I want to preach to you here uh, on this thought about the battlefield of prayer. Let's ask the Lord to touch our hearts here tonight. Lord, we're thankful for your goodness. We're thankful, Lord, for your spirit. I'm thankful, Lord, for God, the way that you touched us this morning. I'm thankful, God, for what we have experienced, Lord, even here tonight. I pray, God, that our church, Lord, all that are here, that, God, that you would strengthen our faith, Lord. Those that, God, are with us online, I pray, God, that there would be a special blessing. And, Lord, that you would minister to their lives as well. We pray, Lord, tonight that somehow that we would understand, God, not only our, Lord, responsibility for prayer, but I pray, God, that before, Lord, this message is over, that you help us to understand, Lord, that there's great reward and there's great power that comes, Lord, to us when we give ourselves to prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. And uh, I've got a um, set of notes up here that's probably about like an all-day sucker. But fear not, I've got a timer. And um, if you're a clock watcher, the timer is going at 39, 40 minutes. And so you can, if you get bored, you watch the time at 6.42. I will try to be finished by 7.25. I want to preach to you on this thought about the battlefield of prayer. If ever there was a time that we should understand that if we are willing to spend our time and energy in for a revival and for a spiritual awakening, that is a very worthy purpose for all of us to invest our lives in. And yet I would tell you here today that there is a great price tag that comes to those that desire revival, spiritual hunger, and spiritual passion and an opening for the Lord to work in their lives. And so I ask you a question here tonight. Is there a spiritual hunger in our day? Is there a desire that, that we have here tonight for a revival or an awakening? And I, I have used until probably a month ago, I did not know what the term red peel meant. Uh, it is a uh, they use it kind of as a verb. They say that people are red-peeled whenever they are awakened to what is taking place around them. There is a great need for all of us here tonight to be awake and aware of the times that are taking place around us. I don't believe that anything that we are seeing take place, not only in our nation, but certainly around our world, that there are prophetic events that are unfolding right in front of our eyes. We, we've heard, if you've been around the church for any length of time, you have heard that the Lord is coming back. 
And now it looks like that every bit of it is unfolding right in front of us. And it is crucial for all of us here tonight to be awake and aware of our need for God and our family's need for God and even our wiregrass area for them to be awake and alert to their need of salvation. If you look back in history, one of the great revivals of the American past took place in the late spring and early summer of 1801 in a little place called Cane Ridge, Kentucky. It started literally with a pastor of a small church by the name of Barton Stone that had come to serve. It was a little Methodist church there. and Really, it was basically just a group of farmers there. And so those farmers met up and Pastor Stone decided that what he would do was call for just a four-day meeting for personal revival and personal renewal. And so the members of that small church there in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, because most of them were farmers. They had already put the seed in the ground at that point in May, and so they basically were waiting for the harvest. And so that little church came together, and before it was over with, that little Methodist church there began to experience what they would term in the 1800s something called the fullness of the Spirit, or as later, John and Charles Wesley would call it perfect love. When you start reading about the accounts of that that took place there, it was obvious that those people, even though they may have just been salt of the earth and common people, that they had been filled with the Holy Ghost as had taken place in the book of Acts. And so the year rocked on and soon they discovered that they felt like that uh, because the, the thing in May had, had been such a success there in uh, their church that they decided that what they would do was brought prior to the harvest of crops that they would all gather in again and they would meet for a revival before they started harvesting the crops because in those days, those farmers, once they got started, with the harvest, there was not really time to stop for them to go to church there. And so in that place there in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, there was somewhere around 20,000 people that gathered in over that period of time where the, that they met there. James Finley, who was one of the converted preachers there in the Methodist church, he described it in his personal journal like this. He said the noise was like the roar of Niagara. He said there was a vast sea of human beings that they seemed to be agitated as if by a storm. He said, I counted seven ministers all preaching at one time, there were some that were standing on stumps, some that were standing in the back of wagons, and there was another that was standing on a tree that had fallen and it had lodged against another, and that served as a makeshift pulpit for them. Some of the people were singing, and there were others that were praying, and there were others that were crying out for the mercy of God, and some of them in the most pitiful way as they began to express their need for God during that period of time. He said there was such a strange supernatural power there that seemed to pervade the entire mass of the people that were there. 
He said, I stepped up on a log and he said, so that I could get a better view of the surging sea of humanity. At one time, he said, I looked and I thought that I saw somewhere around 500 that had been swept by the Spirit. He said it was almost like that there had been a battery of a thousand guns that had been opened up on them and they immediately began to respond with shrieks and shouts and the revival rent the very heavens there. Whenever we read about those things in uh, in the, the distant history, 200 plus years ago, that that particular thing took place. Out of that was a young man by the name of Peter Cartwright. And Peter Cartwright would go later on and he would get connected up uh, with the parents of Abraham Lincoln. And, and uh, Abraham Lincoln's parents were very involved in the Methodist revival and restoring that took place in that particular period of time. If there's something again that we have to understand about revivals, it is this, is that there is a price tag that is on a revival. And I wonder if the Lord is not in this time, that if he is not using our circumstances that are around us, this event that has taken place in the year of 2020, I dare say that, that all of us would say that there has never been an event like this one. We we would say that. We say we have never seen anything like this in our lifetime. And while there may be some that are falling away in the church, I believe that those that are really hungry for a work of the Spirit in their lives, that what are they doing? They're drawing near in the middle of that. Some of that may be out of fear. I don't know, but I do believe that even if it is, that the Lord can use fear to draw us into a closer place of a relationship with God. Revivals, when they come, they bring churches back to prayer. It brings churches to a place where that they are hungry for the word of God. It brings them to a point where that spiritual stagnation and deadness of heart is something that they say that they want to move away from. When revivals come to us, there is heartfelt and there is sincere worship. It's not that you're just going through the motions, but there is something that I felt here in this morning service and even tonight that there is more than us just gathering in and singing and praying, but there's something that has taken place in my heart and taken place in your heart when I look out across a congregation of people that are sincere and that are hungry for the Lord. Revivals bring churches into places of intercessory prayer that sometimes is forgotten in our day because perhaps we have been so blessed by God that we have forgotten what it was like to cry out to the Lord in a sense of desperation. Revivals brings a commitment to holiness and a separation from the world. It causes us to say that there is a sense of the world that we we no longer have a stomach or a desire for anymore. Revivals fills our churches with passion and godly desire. Revivals brings about a reformation in our minds that we begin to realize that 
God is the most important thing in our lives. The looming question of the times is this, is are there any churches? Are there any saints of God that would be hungry for revival to take place here? Are there family members that you want to see saved and filled with the Spirit that their lives are changed? If that is where we are, then then we are right for revival to come. If there is a scripture that seems to prevail in the word of God that would be related to, to revival, it is in Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. I, I'm sure that a lot of you could quote that year tonight. But let's look at that verse there. It says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will, will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This verse right here tells me that it is never too late for a nation. It's never too late for a church. It's never too late for an individual to begin to turn your life in the direction of God and say, Lord, I have got to live out this scripture here. Notice what is here. It's conditional. If the people humble themselves, if the people will pray, if the people will seek God's face, if the people will turn from their wicked ways, those requirements, if they are fulfilled, then what is there that would take place? Then God says this. He says, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive your sin and I will heal your land. And we may look and we may think that Lord, the land is certainly in need of healing. But Lord, there's even more. My family, my life, my marriage, every person around me is in need of revival and in need of your touch and your healing. Just knowing the fact that God will do that if we do our part, then here is what I want to preach to you here tonight, that revival and spiritual awakening can be in the grasp of this church here. And I I, I believe this as a pastor here. I have at times prayed for, it didn't matter to me the denomination I just pray that in our wire grass area that God would pour his spirit out in every single church that there would be a spiritual awakening that would come to pulpits and that would come to pews in every church in our area revival and spiritual awakening have always found its roots in churches that were places of prayer and yet here's what I have to confess to you that a lot of times most of me, most of my prayers and perhaps even you that a lot of times the deepest praying that we do comes out of our own pain our personal problems and our personal challenges of life and and, and this is somehow to say to you tonight that no 
no real overall purpose of prayer is really fulfilled when I'm asking God just to fix my life and to fix my problems. If we're going to prevail in prayer, if we're going to overcome the delays and the obstacles and the challenges that finds ourselves toward prayer, then here's what we have to do. We have to realize that prayer is a battlefield just as Moses and Aaron and her as they were on that hill there it was a battle that was taking place below them but the response on the hill affected what was taking place down in the valley and if ever there needed to be people like Moses and Aaron and her to rise up in this generation now and to give yourself to prayer it's important that we are a praying church because there's a battle that's taking place in the valley. It all starts with prayer. The kind of prayer that's not so much interested in just personal renewal, but it is motivated by praying for others to the end that those people are saved and that their lives are transformed. One man said it like this. His name was Halsby. He said, the secret prayer chamber is a bloody battleground. Here, violent and decisive battles, they are fought out. Here the fate for souls for time and eternity is determined in a solitude of prayer. There's got to be some holy violence in your prayer. And again, for uh, just... uh, forgive this personal reference but uh, uh, just two weeks ago or three weeks ago whenever I preached from Psalm 94 that there was just a part of me that was disturbed by the corruption that we're seeing in our nation and in Psalm 94 rise up O judge of the earth and while we don't want the vengeance of God to destroy people we have to realize this that before some of them are going to repent and turn toward God then they are going to have to experience the vengeance and they're going to have to understand the wrath of God before they are turned back in that direction and there has got to be something inside of us that we don't hesitate to take Psalm 94 and to pray that particular psalm. Holy violence in our prayer that pulls us away from our worldliness, from our bitterness, from our unforgiveness, from the grudges that may be locked in to our hearts and to our spirits. Even from the apathy that sometimes gets in to the spirit of all of us, there's got to be a desire inside that says Lord deliver me from my spiritual apathy and my spiritual laziness and help me to be an effective prayer warrior because this church is important in your praying your family is important in your praying and your personal life is important in your praying I want you to turn in your Bibles. I wrote this in the margin, guys, and so I didn't give you this verse reference, but I want you to turn with me for a moment to the book of Colossians. Look over in Colossians chapter 4, and I want you to look with me uh, to verses 12 and 13 there. And while we look at this man that is mentioned here, 
His name is Epaphras, and they, uh, Paul is writing. He's the pastor there of one of the churches there at Colossae. But look at what Paul says. Paul says in verse 12 of Colossians 4, he says, Epaphras is one of you. He is a servant of Christ. He salutes you. And then here's what it says about him. Always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and for them that are in Laodicea and them that are in Hierapolis. Here was a man that was able to give himself to prayer. But notice the hard work that's there because verse 12 says that he labored fervently for you in prayer. That tells me right there that prayer is not for the weak hearted. It's not for those that somehow just decide, well, I'm gonna pray today. Now, Lord, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Or it's like that prayer whenever Mark and I were still growing up at home, we could sit down at the table and we could say it so fast. God is great, God is good. Let us thank you for our food. It's almost like we were speaking in tongues whenever we were saying that prayer we could say it so fast and yet that in itself is not true prayer true prayer is a place where you get down and there is a concern that you have and there's something that's welling up inside of you and it's beginning to say listen the only way that I'm going to be able to have the need met is for me to be able to pray and to give myself to that matter of prayer. But the Bible tells us in the text that we read here that we noticed that there was an enemy that was attempting to defeat Israel. They were the Amalekites. They were predators. They were some of the nastiest enemies that Israel had to face in the the part from the Exodus before they went into that walled city there in Jericho. They were predators. They weren't an enemy that would face them head to head. What they would do was they would sit back on the back and they would snipe from the back and they would try to take down the young and the weak and the elderly and the sickly. They would sneak around and and they would somehow try to find a place where that they were in a perhaps a mountain pass or or maybe trying to get across the river and half of them would be across and the other half were trying to get across and the Amalekites would come and they would attack them. They would attack the women and the children. In fact, if you look in 1 Samuel 13, The Bible tells us that when David left Ziklag, that while he was going out to battle, then the Amalekites came in and they attacked Ziklag at the time. And the scriptures tells us that, that they took that David's wives and the men's wives and, and David's children and the other men's children so that when they got back to the city that all of those were hostages and the city was burning down. That technique was not something that was new to them. We look in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and beginning in verse 17 the Bible says there remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when you were come forth out of Egypt 
how that he met you by the way and he smote the hindmost of you even all that were feeble behind you and whenever you were faint and you were weary and he feared not God that sounds like the devil to me that sounds like even in our day that whenever there are attacks that they come against you that that is exactly the way that the enemy attacks he comes in from behind he catches us when we're faint and when we're weary and there is a part of him that doesn't fear God and his goal is to try to take you and I out and that's what the Amalekites did best and the devil operates like that he attacks our kids he comes along he attacks our greatest weaknesses he fights unfairly he comes along and he catches us off guard and hear me church one of the greatest times in my existence is going to be somewhere in the future whenever I am in the presence of the Lord and the Bible takes tells us that the Lord is going to take some of his angels and they're going to bind him and they're going to cast him in to a lake of everlasting fire and while there is praise for Jesus Christ and what he has done for me and what he's done for you I'm going to tell you something whenever I witness that event there will be a roar of worship that comes up out of my heart and out of my spirit because the last foe has been defeated all of the times he's been in our lives all of the times he's tried to destroy you and to tear you down listen to me church there's coming a day where that is going to end and the Lord Jesus Christ is going to reign forever he is going to reign in power and in majesty and in strength and we're going to be able to say I'm redeemed and I have been filled with his spirit. <laughs> oh, in the name of Jesus. <clears throat> but there's some trials that can come to us in our praying. I want to point out some of those trials that comes to you in your prayers. The, these things that they sometimes stand in our way, in our battlefield. Number one is our wants. And number two is our enemies, and number three is our sins. Our wants, how do they work it out? There's times where that, that we are at a place where that, that we're like the children of Israel. We feel like we don't have any food and, and we don't have any water. And, and there's something in our spirit that says, my wants have, have gotten my attention off of the Lord. And, and these are the things that I'm paying attention to. And then the Bible tells us that not only can our wants somehow get us in a place where we're distant from God, but our enemies can come around. And there the enemies began to battle us. And yet here's what happened. The Amalekites were delivered. The victory was over. But how did it take place? It was whenever Moses got on the mountain and began to have his hands up in the air. And he began to pray. But here's what the enemy knows then there's times where that even in your private prayer even in your time of corporate prayer
that there can be a moment where that you feel like you're weary and that the enemy's got the best of you. That's why you need brothers and sisters in the Lord. You need somebody like Aaron and you need somebody like her that can come along and that they cannot be judgmental. They cannot be critical in your life, but they can say, you know what? I understand what it's like to be weary. I understand what it's like to be weak. Here, brother, here, sister, let me hold up your arms in prayer while you begin to pray. And whenever they lift your arms up, here's what you do. You look down in the valley and all of a sudden you begin to see the battle turning in another different direction. Church, we need each other. And if there's ever something that I have realized throughout all of this COVID that we have to realize that if the enemy can breach the matter of fellowship that a local body of believers has and get us separated and isolated from each other, then what he wants to do is capitalize with depression and discouragement and even a spirit of delirium that can get into our heart and into our lives. But thank God, oh, as the foster said, that somebody turned the light on in here. We need to turn the light on in this building every day. You need to somehow understand that this is a place where there's strength. This is a place where there's encouragement. This is a place where somebody will pray for you and they will help you. But then there's something else, and this is a this is a scary part. Is that there's times where that even our sins can somehow come in our direction. And it can hinder and it can stop the work of the Spirit. I'm going to tell you one of the most terrifying stories that you read about in the Scriptures. It's whenever the Bible talks about the fiery serpents that started crawling around among all the Israelites. Can you imagine that? <laughs> My mother, she don't like that idea. <laughs> Here, here a few weeks ago, I was out, Brother Sims and I were out uh, riding four-wheelers, acting like teenagers, which we're way away from being teenagers. But anyways, we was out riding on a back dirt road somewhere, and, and uh, there was a big water moccasin that was probably, I don't know, two and a half, three feet long, crawling across that road. And that thing was as thick as my forearm. And I'm going to tell you what, even though I was up on that four-wheeler, I didn't want to get near uh, that that beast, that serpent. And yet the Bible tells us that those snakes were crawling around among that. And, and what did Moses do? The Bible tells us that he, he got the directions from the Lord. And when he got the directions from the Lord, the Bible says that he built, he put a brazen serpent and he put it up on a small cross. And the Bible tells us that whenever he looked, when those people, when they looked in the direction of that brazen serpent, that the Bible tells us that there was instant healing that was taking place. That is what we have to understand, that instead, whenever sin may attack your life, the last thing you need to do is to run away from the church. 
There needs to be something on the inside of you that even though you may be embarrassed, even though you may be humiliated, even though you may have, that the enemy tries to take shame and use that and try to rub your nose in that. What do we need to do? We need to run in the direction of the church because where there is repentance, where there is a covering, where our sins are forgiven, there is a restoring, there is a renewal, There is a spiritual passion that can take place in our lives because we give ourselves to prayer. And we have to understand that it's important for us to do those particular things. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, and it's sometimes in our weariness that our our can be the greatest trial of our prayer. Spurgeon said it like this. He said, a A slumbering spirit is the best friend that prayerlessness can find. Joshua got weary in his fighting. But I want to tell you, Moses got even more weary in his praying. And there's times where it is easier to work than it is to pray. It's easier to give ourselves to those things that we say, if I can just stay busy And the enemy knows that. If he can get you so busy that he moves you away from your praying, then the fact is is that there is something that can be destroyed in your life. That's why the devil and our flesh and the world wants to keep us distracted from the hard work of prayer. And yet, what are the remedies Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. Here's one of the remedies. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Psalm 55 and 16. As for me, I will call upon God and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning at noon will I pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. Romans chapter 8 and verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. And so let me ask you some questions. Who do you pray for? I was to say right now, who do you pray for? I'm sure that probably all of us, that we could say, well, I pray for my family. But is there prayer that goes beyond that? Do you know what a prayer journal is? You know what a journaling Bible is? A journaling Bible, and I don't work for Ollie's, but... I thank God for Ollie's. <clears throat> because you can go in Ollie's and they, they always have those journaling Bibles in there. King James, New King James, NIV, New American Standard, whatever flavor you want, they generally have those there. What if you were to start taking one of those journaling Bibles and you were to take Herbert Lockyer's book, All the Prayers in the Bible, and you were to start working through those prayers,
prayers and highlighting those prayers in a journaling Bible and writing out to the side who you pray for. Who are you going to pray for tomorrow night at the prayer revival? And I want to help you. I have men that I that are pastors that I pray for. And uh, generally speaking, I usually pray for these men. Some of them I pray for them daily. But I pray for them all at least weekly. I pray for Wayne Naylor in Danville, Kentucky. I pray for Tony Mancino in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I pray for Mike Patterson in Romania. I pray for Anthony Mangan in Alexandria, Louisiana. I pray for Jeff Arnold in Gainesville, Florida. I pray for Johnny Craner in Bowling Green, Kentucky. I pray for Jerry West, who is a Metro missionary right now traveling to start a church in D.C. I pray uh, <clears throat> for Jimmy Tony uh, in Gainesville, Florida. I pray for our district board. I start. I sit next to Brother Roberts and I move around Brother Roberts, Brother Davidson, Brother Brasita, Brother Trayward, Brother Bertram, Brother Cheryl, Brother Britt, Brother Bozeman, Brother Anderson and then back is where I'm sitting out. I pray for those people. I come in here and I walk around up and down the pews and the chairs that are here in this church and for the most part most of you sit usually in the same place and I pray for you at that regular time. There are others that you send me text messages and I pray for those that are there, that you have those special needs that you have and you want somebody to pray for. But here's my question. We have people who pray for us, but are you praying for somebody else? Forgot two other names that I left off. Mark Harrelson in West Mobile and Stephen Williams in uh, Foley. And, uh, and, and there's that part where you've got to put some specific names into those people that you pray for. I pray for the condition of my marriage. I pray for the condition of my mind. I pray for Justin and Alyssa and Asher and Eddie and I pray for Nate and Tab and for Reagan. I pray for Laura and I pray for my parents. I pray for Brother Patterson. There are things in my heart and spirit that I realize that if there is going to be somebody that is praying then I have to pray for them and I want them to be able to pray for me here's what I'm afraid of I'm afraid that whenever we get to heaven that our record for prayer is either going to be our great reward or it's going to be our greatest embarrassment Because every prayer, the scriptures tells us, that not only the tears are bottled up, but the record of the prayers. My parents are both now well into their 70s. And whenever Mark and I was, were growing up, every night that we were not in church, before we went to bed, we went back in there to their bedroom and, and we knelt and we prayed. And after I left home, that was a practice that my parents continued to do. I have to confess to you that as a parent, 
And I didn't follow through with that nearly like I should have. Because here's what happens to us as parents, especially when our kids are smaller, is chaos. And you feel like you ought to have a leash around their neck. Whenever they try to get up, you want to just jerk them back and pull them back in. And, and yet here's the part that we have to understand. We need to persist in our praying And we need to say and to understand that there is a battlefield of prayer. What is the record of your prayer? What does your prayer look like? I I look over there and and this tonight during the service, I was uh, sitting up here and I I kept noticing Carson back there sitting next to uh, Sister Kay. And uh, he was, I mean, he was acting like a, a, three-year-old or four-year-old little boy, ever how old he is, wide open and, and uh, moving and twitching and all that kind of stuff. But, but I, it, it crossed my mind that there's a part where that when our children are small, then we need to be praying things into them because whenever they get to be teenagers, there's going to be battles that they're going to face. There's going to be temptations that are going to be coming around the bend and there needs to be a prayer of a parent that comes along and says, we must pray for our children. There is a fight on for us to forget the need for prayer and we have to realize that we need to be a praying church. We need to be more in our praying than even in our singing. We need to be in our praying more than even in our preaching. There needs to be a connection of prayer that this church plugs into and says that we must give ourselves to prayer. I read this about Brother Haywood. I'm concluding if our musicians would like to come. Brother G.T. Haywood was a presiding bishop of the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World and uh, Perhaps one of the songs that he's best remembered by is that song, I See a Crimson Stream of Blood. And you know the story of that, about how that he shut himself in on a Sunday night after church. He was just burdened down with some problems and challenges in the church. And Brother Haywood, long dead now, but Brother Haywood locked himself up in his study on that Sunday night after church and stayed in there for the whole week fasting and praying. And on that Sunday night before the service started, come out of that study, that prayer room, singing, I see a crimson stream of blood. But one of the hymns that that he wrote that was sung at Christ's temple there in Indianapolis, copyrighted in 1923 do all in Jesus name preach in Jesus name teach in Jesus name heal the sick in his name and always proclaim it was Jesus name in which the power came that's what we have to realize in our lives that there are going to be things that are going to move into your life a schedule out of control things that crop up and hinders us from our places of prayer but if there ever was a time 
that our nation needed you praying. It's now. It's not that it hadn't needed it in the times past, but we literally, we, we are standing at the edge of a cliff. And I believe that there are churches not only in our state, but there are churches that are all across our nation that they are crying out to the Lord. And I can't afford to allow us as a church to say, oh, it's just going to work out. Ever how the Lord decides it's going to work out, it's going to work out. We've got to be a praying church. We've got to be a church that prays through weariness. We've got to be a church that prays through sin. We've got to be a church that prays through our, our wants and say that the Lord needs me. He needs you to pray. Lord, I pray tonight, Lord, for this congregation. I pray, God, that you forgive us, Lord, of our prayerlessness. I pray, God, that, Lord, you forgive us of our busyness. And I'm asking you, Lord, tonight to help us, Lord, to see this battle that's taking place not only in our nation but in our world. Help us, Lord, to recognize it for what it is. And I'm asking you, Lord, tonight to help us to come to a place of prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I'd like to...